I say we approach it the same way we approach everything else. We wing it. Yeah. Speaking of which, I took no notes this week. But are we going to do the actual sort of official Welcome to Marvel Reread Club thing? Oh, did we not do that? No, we haven't done that yet. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Should we go ahead and start with Amazing Spider-Man number seven? Do you want to do Amazing Spider-Man number seven or should I do it? I guess the question is who wants to do the hate monger because the hate monger comes next. <laughs> I'll do Amazing Spider-Man. How about that? Uh, we begin with just sort of a splash page showing the characters in All combat. Right, and right then... away, I think we're, I think you not having notes might be bad. I think we're already describing too much talking about the splash page. We had a vow not to discuss splash pages anymore. We are breaking our vows. Okay, then our story begins well, with a... Re- actually, I want to talk about the splash page. Uh, okay. <laughs> Jacuz. All right. <laughs> uh, so I feel like did the vulture, and I could just look this up. I feel like he's got a more significant hunchback this time, and not the character. Adrian Toomes does not have a hunchback, but he has built a sort of, I guess, vulture esque hump into his outfit this time, which I feel like he didn't have. It's very clear here on the splash page. I'm not sure. If so, then you could put that down to his new and improved flight capabilities, which yes. will be coming up as a plot point here. Yes. So I don't know. Perhaps so. We begin this issue with just a recap of Spidey and Vulture's last battle. Spidey had invented a little magnetic, an anti-magnetic inverter to uh, foil the Vulture's wings. And so then the Vulture got himself thrown in jail. The Vulture, of course, then becomes a, or Adrian Toomes, I should say, becomes a model prisoner, uh, which allows him access to the machine shop. And in the machine shop, he, of course, develops some new wings. Now, these are just sort of... Last time we saw Adrian Toomes at the end of issue two, they had put him in jail in his Vulture costume. Presumably, (laughs) somebody, some eagle-eyed member of the staff of that prison was like, wait just a second, here's an idea. Maybe we should have him in prison, not in his flying costume. We might occasionally want to let him into the courtyard. And so then they took his flying costume off him. But now, to no avail, he builds his own. Yes, of course. Do not let him near the machine shop. Yes. He then escapes from prison with his makeshift wing getup that he's got. But he has plans for making much more powerful wings, which he will uh, put into effect soon. Then we get on the schoolyard at Peter Parker's high school. Peter overhears somebody who's listening to a transistor radio uh, and they break into the broadcast with news. The vulture has escaped. And of course, Pete is like, oh, I need to uh, get out of here so I can do something about this. And, you know, he's once again lamenting that his always needing to duck out to become Spider-Man makes him look like a coward or like a wimp. But, you know, it's just sort of the price to pay for being Spider-Man. He then is trying to get out of his house without being sighted by anybody. He is more or less successful, although one kid does say he saw him, but the uh, parents are like, "Eh, don't make up stories. Spider-Man goes out looking for the vulture. The vulture, meanwhile, is uh, robbing a jewelry store. The cops say, we can't risk shooting him. He's clever enough to fly over the crowd. If a bullet should miss him, it might ricochet and hit an innocent bystander. Bless those cops right there, right? Spider-Man finally catches sight of the vulture. Spider-Man has, of course, brought his anti-magnetic inverter with him again this time because he knew that that defeated Tombs last time. So he has it and he's all cocky. And then uh, the vulture acts like he's been defeated. So he starts spiraling downward, 
pretending that the anti-magnetic inverter has defeated him, but actually he has come up with some kind of inverter inverter or something like that, (laughs) turning plus to minus and minus to plus. It did not actually undo his wings, and he is able to knock him for a loop because of the element of surprise. Well, he doesn't just get knocked for a loop. This is the worst injury we've seen him get. That's the first thing is he gets knocked for a loop and then he ends up falling off the building and he's so disoriented that he can't shoot his web right to go ahead and catch onto the building. So that means he actually has to just tuck and roll when he lands on another rooftop, you know, with nothing to break his fall except just his own spider strength and whatever agility he can get to Uh, make the roll. So he ends up thinking he might have even broken his arm. He hits so badly. It turns out later it's just a sprain, but still it's pretty bad and it's not going to be in top shape for at least a week or so. The first of many times when Spider-Man has to fight injured, which I think Stan Lee really loves to do. Steve Ditko loves it too. This is a dude who takes some punishment and they always get interesting stories out of this. And this is something you never get from the so-called distinguished competition. Right. Batman in this era was never going to be severely injured and still having to go back into battle. Superman pretty much can't be injured. One of the things that separates this from lots of the other comics that were being published at the time. I always liked it when he had a cold and he would sneeze inside his mask. (laughs) When I wrote my version of Spider-Man 3, I made sure to give him a cold because I always loved it when Spider-Man had a cold. You know, Peter Parker sneaks home as Spider-Man, injured, humiliated, in pain. Uh, He sneaks into his bedroom and then realizes that Aunt May is just about to walk in on him. And, you know, his arm is pretty much just dead. So he can't just do a quick change, grab his robe. He's like almost immobile. So he ends up just having to jump up on the ceiling and hide from her up on the ceiling so that she then thinks, oh, I must have imagined the movement in there. Maybe maybe he's not home. It looks like their house has a drop ceiling. Yes. <laughs> sort of odd for a residential home. But anyway, so he then changes into his regular clothes, jumps back out the window and then comes in to be like, oh, I just came home from whatever. He has to fess up about something having happened to his arm. Ant-Man insists on taking him to the doctor. He gets a sling and is told that it's going to take him a couple of weeks to heal. Of course, the kids at school are making fun of him for being such a uh, milksop that he uh, injures his arm playing volleyball or something like that. They make fun of him. We then see that the Vulture has a hideout on Staten Island. There so is. he had this the last time he was in Spider-Man number two. We saw him with the same Staten Island corn silo type hideout in a farm out on Staten Island. He wasn't there when they caught him. So presumably, no matter how much they sweated him, he just wouldn't reveal where his hideout was. Yeah, I had forgotten that that was something there earlier. The vulture decides that his next heist is going to be the payroll of J. Jonah Jameson, who publishes both the Daily Bugle and Now Magazine. I think in the past they had him first working at Now Magazine and then at the Daily Bugle. I think this is the first time they've made it clear that he publishes both before they had just sort of switched over. And now they're going like, no, 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 that's two different places published in the same building. One of the things that I find interesting here is the whole idea of robbing a company's payroll. So I guess in the early 60s, they were still just giving out envelopes of cash. I guess so. It was one thing at a blue collar job where you might have people who don't have easy access to banks. But I would think that there would be checks by this point. But I don't know. Maybe not. They should have switched to checks by now because the vulture is about to steal their payroll. So then we get some flirting between Peter and Betty. It looks like that's developing nicely at this point. He then tries to sell some pictures to uh, J. Jonah Jameson. And he is saying, yeah, lots of people have pictures like this. They're not great. I'll just go ahead and pay a little bit for them. But, you know, you need to get me something better. 
in comes the vulture to make his robbery. And he just has a gun on him. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Which you don't see that often in comics. Not a vulture gun. Not a. Right. <laughs> exactly. Just a gun. Not Cobra darts or Cobra cord or Cobra whatever like we had last episode. He goes ahead and holds JJ up with a handgun. Peter Parker uses that moment to slip out, change into Spider-Man. Now, of course, his arm is still pretty much useless. Of all the times he's put his secret identity in danger, this has to be one of the biggest ones. He was just in this office with his arm in a sling, and now he disappears from it, instantly reappears as Spider-Man, also unable to use that arm. But it always kind of works. On the one hand, that could just be something where it's like, oh, how ridiculous. But they sort of have him come up with a way to sort of hide the fact he can't move his arm as Spider-Man. And it just comes off as heroic. It comes off as like, wow, he's really willing to put his secret identity at risk in order to save these people. And it's not entirely unbelievable that he gets away with it. And they do acknowledge that. He's got those webs under his arms at this point. And so I think he was saying something about either using that web to try and act as a makeshift sling that people wouldn't notice, or using his actual web shooter to make a sling and sort of disguising it as part of that thing. I'm not quite sure which one it was. But they do talk about how, okay, I've got to make sure that no one knows that I'm injured as Spider-Man even though I am very injured. (laughs) Spider-Man and Vulture have a battle in the news offices here. Jameson is just basically like, give him whatever. I don't want you guys destroying my office. You know, even though earlier he had been talking about how taking the payroll would ruin him. Now at this point that the Spider-Man is actually trying to help him. He's like, no, no, you're just going to destroy everything now by fighting in here. So we get some really neat pictures of Betty hiding and Spider-Man and Vulture chasing each other and bounding about. Excellent Steve Ditko imaginative fight scene, chase scene stuff. Yeah. And we end up going down to the printing press, which I always love. Also, in my version of Spider-Man 3, I wrote, they fight in the printing press at one point. Uh, Mm -hmm. He fights Venom in the printing press because I always love it whenever Spider-Man stories go down to the printing press, which is such a great visual (laughs) and always a fun place to have an action scene. All the big, heavy industrial machinery is always, again, one of the things that Ditko likes to uh, play with, along with dank sewers. Vulture goes out the window and traps Spider-Man. So then Vulture flies him up and is basically going to go drop him from way, way above the city so that he is going to fall down and die. But then Spider-Man goes ahead and webs up his wings so that he can't fly. And he's like, but but now we'll both die. Then Spider-Man does one of those things that I generally don't like where, you know, he somehow weaves a parachute from his web shooter right above him. It would take a lot of work. <laughs> it would. That's just sort of strains credibility for me. Credulity? Credibility? Credulity. credulity strains, yes. Strains credulity. It strains credulity for me. Meanwhile, on page 19, I just want to point out that middle panel, the one in the middle row. I love those faces. Yes, they're great. So then he lets Vulture drift down on his little web parachute. Meanwhile, J. Jonah Jameson sticks his head out the window. He says, Spider-Man, wait. And of course, Pete, being the sucker that he always is, you know, Charlie Brown with the football, like, oh, now that I've saved his business, he's going to thank me. This will be nice. And then, of course, he comes up and he's just saying, I hold you responsible for all the damage to my building. They have a little back and forth, which ends with Spider-Man webbing Jonah Jameson's mouth shut with webbing. He changes back into Peter Parker, puts his sling back on, comes and finds Betty, who's still hiding behind a desk. He snuggles up next to her and they actually have what looks like almost a kiss moment. J. Jonah Jameson goes running out behind them with his mouth webbed shut. Uh, And they have this great exchange where Betty says, look, Mr. Jameson can't talk. 
I wonder what's wrong with him. Pete says, wrong? It's an improvement. <laughs> Betty says, Peter, sometimes I get the feeling you're laughing at a secret little joke that's all your own. Says, if you keep using that cool perfume, Betty, I may break down and tell you about it someday. Later, it finishes up with something about, what will Mr. Jameson say? Pete says, nothing, baby, for at least an hour. Because, of course, his webbing dissolves in an hour. Stan has what sort of seems like an apologetic little ending down here. As we admit, it, this isn't a typical ending for a typical superhero tale. I don't know whether he actually is sort of feeling a little bit like, is this going to go over well? Or if he's just sort of being his usual kind of self-deprecating kind of self there. But one way or the other, this is a delightful issue. This is probably the most I like the Pete and Betty romance is here at this moment. It really feels like sort of the peak of it for me. Really? I I like this whole relationship. I think it just gets stronger and stronger as it goes along. As she becomes a richer character, I feel like, you know, by the time you introduce her brother, by the time you introduce her more working class background, I feel like she just gets more and more interesting to me. But I love this final page where Betty is still hiding behind her desk and then Pete just sort of sits down with her. I just remember those moments where you just sort of sit down next to somebody. Yeah. You form a little cocoon. Yeah. You know, I just think it's a really sweet moment, just them sitting on the floor together. I think that Betty is just tremendously appealing here. And they just seem to each think the other is kind of cute. I don't feel like they really have bonded over their background yet or anything like that. So I wish there was a little more to the romance already. There will be soon. But they're just they're just an appealing couple. And uh, it's great to see Pete not being such a loser. It's great to see Pete effectively engaging in some romantic banter. And she is great. It's great to see a relationship in which the girl is older, which is seemingly the case. But in an upcoming issue, they are going to take great pains in the letters page to explain that he is older than her which makes no sense. I know that they sort of made it at least plausible that that might be true because she had dropped out of high school because of stuff going on in her family that she had to go and help pay the bills. And so that sort of led some plausibility to that idea. But I mean, he's still like, what, a sophomore in high school, right? I think in Dicko's mind, he's a senior in high school. I mean, he obviously graduates before too long. I don't think it makes any sense for him to be older than her. And we'll discuss that when we get to it in the letters page. But right now, I'm enjoying this notion that, you know, you've got this high school guy on the make with this career gal. Yeah. (laughs) It makes for a unique relationship. Yeah, I I think he's supposed to be 17 or so. Okay, maybe so. All right. Well, uh, delightful issue. I was very happy with that one. You know, after our stumble in the Doctor Doom episode and our lizard episode, which was much better than that, but still a little bit off kilter, just being in Florida and everything. This is a real return to the heights of Spider-Man that we are used to. I'm very delighted. I don't know if I like this issue as much as the lizard issue. I think it's too soon to bring the vulture back. I think that they make him fresh and that, you know, we get to see a jailbreak, which we haven't seen in this comic yet, and it's believable enough. But I just think having him in issue two and then five issues later in issue six might be too soon to bring him back. Although, of course, they brought back Dr. Doom just one issue after he originally appeared. I do like how they mix up that he can't be beaten the same way. And anything involving crime at the Daily Bugle or fighting in the printing press, I'm always a fan of. It is a fun issue. And I love the final page with Pete and Betty. So, uh, yeah, this was a good issue. So let's move on to Fantastic Four. And I believe you were taking this one. Yes, a very political issue. The most political book we'll have gotten at this point from Marvel Comics. And we see on the cover, shocking guest star, Sergeant Fury. Sergeant Fury, (laughs) who has been starring in his own book, which we have not been covering on this podcast, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, 
which is set in World War II. Now, we have seen, and in an issue of that book we did not cover, Reed Richards, who, as we all know, worked for the OSS during World War II, did show up in an issue of Sergeant Fury. So we know that these two knew each other, but we have not had any indication at this point if Fury survived the war or what he's doing now. But then he shows up in this book, having not only survived the war, having survived the war with both eyes intact. Because <laughs> Okay, I was going to bring that up too, yes. Colonel, have they actually made him a colonel yet? Yes, uh, yes, a CIA colonel. And they still call him Sergeant Fury on the cover, but he's Colonel Fury on the inside. Well, and they also dress him like Sergeant Fury on the cover, but don't dress him like Sergeant Fury on the inside. That is true. But they don't take away his eye yet. So right away, I think that somebody owes me an apology for saying that Dick Ayers was not a great inker because the Ayers apocalypse has arrived and we have now a new inker. George Russo's using the pen name George Bell, a classic golden age artist, has returned to Marvel and is inking this issue. And I think it is an absolute tragedy. What do you think about the inking? first time I had read through these things like five or six years ago, it didn't necessarily jump out at me one way or the other. As I said, I'm not the biggest Ayers fan. So going to this, it didn't necessarily seem like a huge drop. But after hearing you saying you're not going to like it, you're not going to like it. <laughs> I, I can definitely see what you're getting at there. I mean, there are some parts of it where I'm like, if I squint just right, I can see a charming aspect to this. But Generally, yes, I have to agree with you there. Although that doesn't necessarily change my opinion about Ayers' inking. But yes, this is not the best. So right away, we get to the first page. It's showing the Haymonger and the four members of the Fantastic Four is just their heads. Now, right away, everybody is radically off model. And then you realize <laughs> like, oh, okay, is that because Bell doesn't know how to ink them? Or is that because you realize they're all twisted with hate? So they've all been hit by a hate ray at this point. So mm -hmm. these are the contorted, twisted, angry versions of their faces. But it's really a little bit of both that <laughs> there's no there's no reason to ink them this way. And right away, Ben is especially horrific. And we're going to see a lot more of that in the issue. So no, he's, then he's been at least that horrific, if not more so in the first few issues. There were some times when he looked about that ugly. He looks ugly now, but he looks ugly in a completely different way. He yes, is extremely yes. jagged. Which honestly is how he will develop going forward. So in some ways, this is him sort of crystallizing into the look that he will have for the next decades. Yeah, but very jagged, very disturbing. So then we begin the issue... Everybody is doing their various things when suddenly the whole building starts shaking. Reed is using a delicately calibrated instrument. It starts shaking. Johnny is throwing flame darts at Spider-Man. That starts shaking. <laughs> Sue is just sitting around trying on wigs, proving that a girl is a girl, even when she's a full-fledged partner of the Fantastic Four. Once again, talks about Liz Taylor and Cleopatra, which has been a obsession of Stan Lee's up until this point. <laughs> so then it turns out what is disturbing them is that Ben is pounding the hell out of his huge punching bag because he is so upset about the hate monger, a racist demagogue in the papers. So Ben is saying that Crumb, who calls himself the hate monger, has been causing trouble wherever he goes and nobody can stop him because he's too smart to break any laws. Reed says he's the most dangerous type of menace. He preaches class hatred, race hatred, religious hatred. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Well, first of all, Ben is saying he hasn't broken any laws, but the headline says hate monger causes mob to riot in city. Well, incitement to riot is, in fact, against the law. So right there, he's breaking laws. Okay, so what are the politics here? These have been generally pretty right-wing comics until this point. They've been 
extremely anti-communist. They have been very pro-military. You know, you could say the Hulk is an exception to that. But even in the Hulk, you know, our hero is someone creating weapons for the military. Okay, so does this comic represent the general left-wing trend that's going to affect Marvel in the 1960s? Okay, well, they're saying race hatred and religious hatred are bad. Clearly, this guy is associated somewhat with the John Birch Society, the KKK, with various righteous groups. But then they say class hatred. And it's like, well, what do they mean by class hatred? That could be seen either way. Mm -hmm. That's something that the left has been accused of. Oh, you on the left are just trying to stir up class resentment. You're trying to spread class hatred. There's nothing actually separating the classes. They should get along just fine unless a hate monger comes up and stirs up class hatred. How do you read that? I think that as unambiguously political as this issue is, I still think that they're trying to kind of straddle the fence a little bit there, throwing class hatred in with race hatred and religious hatred. Then you might be like, well, I don't know. I guess you could sort of give yourself some plausible deniability that it's not necessarily an attack against, as you say, the John Birchers or the KKK. I think that they're just trying to be a little bit broad with the brush somewhat deliberately. Yeah. So then we meet the haymonger and he's got a pointy hat. So right there, that's <laughs> recalling the KKK. Yeah. And of course, they show him being racist toward white people, because, of course, we all know the real victims of racism are white people. We've got some vaguely ethnic looking white people who are being driven out and says the haymonger's right. Kick the foreigners out of our neighborhood. And George Belzinking here could not be more splotchy and clunky and just deformed. He just there's no other word for it. He deforms Kirby. Nobody looks like a human being. Bell is doing just as much of work dehumanizing these quote unquote foreigners as the haymonger is. This panel on the bottom of page four. Correct me if I'm wrong. A horrific panel, both intentionally and unintentionally. I'm more noticing the fact that the uh, naturalized American citizen that they are driving out looks like Gomez Adams. <laughs> he does. Um, <laughs> don't drive out Gomez Adams. So then... <laughs> The thing then wrecks the grandstands. He tries to break up the rally. The Haymarker then shoots them with his hate ray. So unlike the vulture, he's got a good science fiction gun. He shoots them with hate ray and suddenly they turn against each other, instantly start hating on each other, attacking each other. The art and they make it clear in some of this, too, that, yes, they often bicker, but this time they really mean it. Yes. This is different from those other times when we've seen them get on each other's case. Again, I think the artist is horrible. I can't see how anybody can even stand upright. If you look at Sue on page six on the upper right, she doesn't look like someone who would be able to stand on her own two feet. And nobody does really to a certain extent. Everybody is off kilter and lumpy and misshapen and malformed. Then we get this huge fight between the two of them. Reed gets stretched out again, which I always appreciate. Stretched out like a rubber band and then bunches up when thing lets go of him. They then say, we all I, I think it's actually when Sue goes and unties his hands, Thing is going to use Reed's stretched out body to slingshot Johnny away. But then Sue goes and unties Mr. Fantastic's hands around the fire hydrant, snapping uh, Mr. Fantastic back into both Ben and Johnny. Yes. So she is able to get all three of them there in one shot. Yes. They all go storming off from each other. We cut to the Baxter building when somebody shows up. It is Nick Fury, no longer Sergeant Fury on the inside of the book. He is Colonel Fury. He has both eyes. He is dressed in a suit and tie, but he has undone the tie to show that he's still basically the working class guy we're used to from Sergeant Fury. He recalls to read that they met before in Sergeant Fury number three. Then we get to 
an abrupt right turn in this issue. It turns out he is there to say, I am here from the CIA and I need your help meddling in a South American country. Okay, suddenly we've jumped from the most left-wing issue we've had so far to, okay, we're helping the CIA meddle in South American countries. And at first, it's just like, okay, this has nothing to do with the plot of the issue. It just so happens that Mr. Fantastic agrees to do it, but since he hates the rest of the Fantastic Four now, he says, I'll just do it by myself, which Colonel Fury is fine about at first. And it just so happens that when everybody shows up in Latin America, that the hate monger is there as well, just seemingly by coincidence. So that's a bizarrely plotted story. (laughs) Then the rest of the Well, I mean, they do have an explanation for that. But you would think Fury would be saying, oh, you guys have been fighting the hate monger. You got to help us go fight up and down in Central America or South America. But they don't. He doesn't mention the hate monger here. Well, I think it's just because he's like, oh, well, they're under the influence of the hate ray. So I'm just going to get them down there by saying whatever will direct their hatred towards getting them down there. So then Reed goes off on his own. Eventually, the rest of the Fantastic Four figure out that something's up. They go and confront Colonel Fury. He decides he wants the rest of them to go down there, too. I don't know why he's being so mockumental about the whole thing. I don't know why he's pitting them against each other in order to get them all working together. It turns out the Haymonger is also down there too, which of course makes no sense. We've had him sort of presented as a righteous villain. Usually the CIA would not be intervening in South America because a rightist was taking over. So why is the CIA intervening if an American right-wing goon is taking over in South America? Again, it's sort of equating the left and the right. They're sort of going like, oh, those people the CIA hates in South America, you know, hate mongers. It's like, well. (laughs) So meanwhile, let me just point out that with their ICBM, which is what Sue, Johnny, and Ben end up taking to, what is it, San... San Gusto. San San Gusto. So with their ICBM, they actually show that it goes up, it leaves its booster behind, and then they parachute down in a capsule. So... These ICBMs are one-time use? Yep. Reed and Sue took one of these to Hawaii in a previous issue. They yes. specifically said they were taking the ICBM. How did they get back? You yeah, know, how does anybody get back in these things? <laughs> one does after one, or they just have to fly commercial, I guess. So then these comically stereotypical South American rebels are trying to take over the government down in San Gusto. Reed takes them on by himself and Kirby has a lot of fun drawing Reed fighting them at one point they're like here we are we are marching through the forest good thing there is this blue carpet in the forest that we can march along it sure makes our job easier oh no it's come to life it's actually Reed Richards and I will say I will say page 16 yeah the inking is particularly um not to my taste on page 16 no particularly that first panel that first panel is a mess but then there's lots of stuff on this page where I'm like okay I'll, I'll grant you that But then there's a cool panel of Reed reaching his fingers into the ground as tendrils to go out like a root system to try to find out what's going on. Reed eventually makes it in to see the hate monger. The hate monger sort of hits him with a nerve gas that somehow hypnotizes him to a certain extent. Turns out hate monger is bouncing his hate ray off the moon and it can now reach anywhere on Earth. Right up there with Shareface Chippendale. <laughs> exactly. Fury suddenly shows up, starts shooting everybody with his machine gun, forces the hate to give Reed a pill that will cure him of his condition. The rest of the Fantastic Four shows up. Reed realizes that the pill has cured him of the hate ray. He has to force pills into the mouth of the rest of the Fantastic Four, which is a More pill popping. More pill popping. And one by one has them overcome their hate. You get them for the first time a Reed versus Sue scene, which are always fun because she is invisible. She is keeping herself from being captured. And he just drapes himself like the world's biggest tarp over the area where he knows she's in. And then her struggling form appears out of his huge tarp-like body. That's always fun to see. They go ahead and attack 
The hate marker, Sue, once again saves the day. The hate monger is about to shoot his hate ray at them when she invisibly grabs him. He ends up hitting his own jackbooted thugs with the hate ray, and they instantly start hating on the hate monger and turn around and shoot him and kill him, at which point they take off his pointy clan-type mask and reveal that he is Adolf Hitler. So <laughs> we now know, is he left or right? Well, I guess we don't, because even Hitler claimed to be a socialist, and yet... Right, yes. As, as many people today will point out to you that, you know, Hitler was a socialist. Yes. A common argument. They hedge their bets a little bit here. Reed says, actually, we'll never know whether this was the real Hitler or one of the many doubles the Fuhrer was reported to have. They know they're sort of pushing things by having Hitler turn out to be the actual villain. And they're like, uh, maybe we can't get away with claiming that. So then the CIA goes ahead and says, this is Fury calling the CIA. Our little caper is finished in San Gusto. The Fantastic Four will explain when they get back. I ain't much on making speeches. And then he sends the Fantastic Four home. They do seem to have a plane at this point. They're not just flying around. Well, that's the Pogo on plane. Remember, remember, Reed had gone in the Pogo plane. The rest of them had followed in the ICBM. So they all pile in the Pogo plane to go back home. I'm just saying that now they have to build a new ICBM. Yes. <laughs> Indeed, uh, two, they do. So two points I want to make about the end of this issue. First of all, when the hate monger accidentally turns his hate ray on his own goons, I would have assumed that that's how he got goons. <laughs> yeah, you would think that <laughs> these, you think these were all just normal Joe Schmoes who he turned his hate ray on and turned them into I mean, hate I mean, that, that would The whole thing is he's got a hate ray and this is what's making these otherwise fine upstanding Americans turn into hateful bigots. That would seem to me that his inner circle would have to also be people he has. Anyway, that, that sort of seemed odd to me. The other thing I want to say is that, you know, there is an issue of Sergeant Fury that comes in a couple of years. They, they have Fury get an injury in his eye that he recovers from, but the doctor tells him that the eye has been severely damaged and he may end up losing it later. Yes. And that is to explain why Fury showed up without an eye patch here. But next, when he shows up, he has an eye patch. That this is, aha, uh -huh, you see, it's from an old World War II injury that the doctor said would cause him to lose an eye in the future. So, yes. You know, not, and I think no, the next time we see Fury, the eye is gone. I believe this yes. is his only modern appearance with an eye. I believe that is true. But that once again reminds me, we do need to do an Oops All Fury episode at some point. We do. So this is this is a fascinating issue. We've got the first real jump to the left of the Marvel Universe, where you'll see Stan Lee really embrace the changes that America goes through in the 60s. He will use both his bullpen bulletins in the back of the books and his stories themselves increasingly to denounce prejudice. And that begins here. I think it's great. I think it's welcome. I think the inking is awful. I think the art looks terrible because of the inking. But Stan and Jack are still doing their best, despite the fact they are being betrayed by George Bell. Yes. All right. So let's go ahead and go on to Journey into Mystery. Thor versus the mysterious Mr. Hyde. Art by Don Heck again. This issue is really not suited to him for the most part, although I like his facial characterization of Mr. Hyde. You talk about how his villainous characters that are supposed to look ugly just tend to look too ugly. And that works for Mr. Hyde in this case. Yes, but I agree. I like I usually don't like his villain faces, but I do like his Mr. Hyde face. We see Mr. Hyde. We're going to find out more about him in a little bit. Thor is going back to Asgard to once again petition his father to allow him to marry the immortal um, Jane Foster. I was about to say Jean Grey. <laughs> Jane Foster. Odin says no again, 
but leaves the door a little bit more open than he had previously. We then get a little flashback to how Mr. Hyde became Mr. Hyde. He is a con man who is trying to get in to work in Blake's office to be able to do something nefarious, and Blake wouldn't hire him. So now he's got a vendetta against Dr. Blake. Okay, <laughs> it seems it seems like a petty thing to be, but, you know, uh, I guess if you're criminally insane, then, you know, okay. So then he makes himself up a potion that turns him into Mr. Hyde, a super powerful, ugly, hulking person. It says he's actually a different person. So he thinks that this is going to make him able to get away with all sorts of crimes and that, oh, no, that was that Mr. Hyde guy. That's not me. I will never be able to be caught for any of this stuff, which, you know, he is way too optimistic on that. So he breaks into Blake's office, finds Jane there, and she is frightened, of course. Blake is in the back room. He had just returned to his office and was in his locked office room when Mr. Hyde bursts in, frightening Jane. Thor turns back into Dr. Blake so he can come out and say, oh, well, what's going on? And there's Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde tosses him out a window. Jane, of course, thinks that he's dead. So... <laughs> Blake has to try to tap his walking stick on the brick wall of the building as he's falling. Okay, so when he's walking and using the walking stick as a walking stick, wouldn't each one of those be, you know, turning him into Thor and then off out of Thor and into Thor and out of Thor? It sort of makes one think a little too much about that to have this. It does. So one way or the other, he's able to tap it against the building, turns into Thor. He comes up and, you know, rescues Jane, but the Jane is like, oh no, but. Dr. Blake's dead. And Thor's like, no, he isn't. I uh, saved him and took him down to the street and uh, he's just fine. She's like, oh, but I'm so worried about him. It's like, oh, yes, he said he was going to call you in just a minute. So then he goes into a telephone booth and calls her uh, as Blake. Meanwhile, we see Hyde. He then wants to take out Thor just because, you know, the plot demands it. <laughs> so then what he does is he actually trying to frame Thor. So he dresses up as Thor gets himself a similar looking hammer and then goes and robs a bank all gloating about being Thor and nobody can do anything about it. Is so that, is that even clear that that's what's going on? We don't see him with a makeup kit and it doesn't seem like he has enough of a similar body type or a similar facial type that he could do that. We just suddenly get this sort of shock of seeing Thor robbing a bank. There's no indication in the text that this is hide in disguise. It's just sort of this mystery of why is Thor suddenly robbing a bank? Yeah, I guess that's implied, and I just inferred that that's what was going on. But yeah, I guess it never explicitly says that. But I mean, what No, what it's this big mystery, and then it leads to the most shocking thing we've seen in the Marvel Universe so far. The story doesn't end. Right, it just sort of ends mid-story where the, the villain is yes. currently winning, and okay, we're done with this issue for now. This has never happened before. We're going to have two of these this month. It is our first cliffhanger you know in the cast we've had dr doom in issue five and six of fantastic four but he was defeated at the end of issue five and then he just came back for an early return visit in number six we've had villains get away at the end quite a bit but this is the first time where they're like this was part one of this story and part two is in the next issue and it is shocking reading your way through these comics to suddenly arrive at the first time this happens this is gonna to a certain extent make this podcast less fun because we're gonna from now on be talking about like well this is just part one of the story we can't discuss the entire story yet because the whole thing hasn't happened yet you know so right away here in this month we've got two of these i think mr hyde is a better villain than the cobra unfortunately they will soon get teamed up so you can't get one without the other i think that lee really loved drawing from classic literature especially classic british literature taking mr hyde wholesale from literature is a fun idea and he's a fun villain and this is an okay issue 
Let's go ahead and get to Tales of Asgard. Tales of Asgard. So we are introduced to Surtur, the fire demon, who becomes one of Thor's great enduring enemies during the legendary Walt Simonson run on Thor in the early 80s, right during the heyday of our collection. Surtur was, to use the Buffy the Vampire Slayer term, the big bad for the first year of uh, Simonson's book. I guess we've seen Surtur before, but this is the first story focusing on him. So once again, with these Tales of Asgard stories, you know, I'm not going to go through and try to tell you what happens in every panel because it's largely just big sweeping things of, oh, then he confronts the fire demons and then he is able to plunge his sword in the ground. He draws unto himself limitless powers of the gods and Surtur comes up after he's defeated all these fire demons. There's this great panel where Surtur's fingers turn into serpents that are menacing Odin. Odin is able to summon frozen remnants of a long-dead planet come hurtling down to Surtur's evil land of fire. So he's able to cool Surtur's fire demonry down so that he can't be as fire demony, which is a mirror image of what we saw in the previous Tales of Asgard, where he was dropping frost giants or ice giants into Surtur's fiery depths. Surtur is defeated for the time being. Surtur makes his move. He knows he cannot harm Odin himself, so he will strike at the king of the gods by destroying the one thing Odin loves, planet Earth. Surtur goes and tries to destroy the Earth. In doing so, he ends up creating the moon, by burrowing into the earth, he ends up ejecting the stuff that becomes the moon. Odin creates the rainbow bridge for the first time. Then he does something with his sword and electromagnetic force to trap Surtur in the center of earth. We also see Yggdrasil, which I'm probably mispronouncing, the a world tree that is supposedly protecting earth from various stuff. That is shown here as well. Odin gets his winged horse. So I'm presuming this story actually takes place before the story we've already seen where he has his winged horse. Uh, yes. Because here is where he gets it. And uh, we so, should point out that Odin also gives the Earth its rotation for the first time when he uh, is trapping Surtur. This is classic mythology here where you're actually right. going like, and that's why we have this today. Odin in the comics, his horse never has eight legs which was a big part of the mm. original myths that Odin always had an eight-legged horse. In the MCU, Odin's horse has eight legs, even though we don't see him very much. Huh. But I didn't notice that. he never had an eight-legged horse in the comics. The horse wasn't birthed by Loki either. Yes, that is true. <laughs> this Tales of Asgard, it says presented with pride by Stanley and Jack Kirby. So there is no anchor credited. Do you think there's any chance that Kirby is inking himself here? I don't think so. This happens from time to time. I know that in Avengers 4, where Captain America, spoiler alert, returns, that doesn't list an anchor either. And it was my thought that for Captain America's real return, Jack Kirby wanted to go and do all the art himself. But no, we have record of who the anchor is and it just they somehow missed it in, in doing the credits. Yeah, I'm assuming that's what's going on here as well. I actually did see reference recently to someone talking about the last self-inked job that Kirby ever did. And I forget when that was, but there is a reference to that somewhere. But I absolutely love this Tales of Asgard. One of my favorite panels, the last panel on page two with Odin in silhouette against the sea of fire 
is just absolutely gorgeous. Yes. The color process was very crude at the time, but you do see some more ambitious work from the colors here in the Sea of Fire. They say next issue, you'll marvel at the boyhood of Thor. So they sort of got as many issues as they felt like they could out of the Adventures of Odin, which you can tell is what Kirby loves. Kirby's like, I would just love to keep doing Odin all day long, but I know that you guys are buying Thor comics, so we're going to have to finally start giving you some Thor stories in the backup, just like we give you in the main story. I think, uh, okay, issue of Thor, a fantastic episode of Tales of Asgard. All right, let's burn through strange tales here. No pun intended. I see what you did there. The Hue and Torch trapped by Spider-Man's fatal foe, the Uncanny Sandman. So I complained earlier that the Vulture was in Spider-Man number two and was already back in Spider-Man number seven. Well, here we have the Sandman coming back even quicker because he was in Spider-Man number three. And now here he is back just a couple months later for Strange Tales 115. In the issue, we're once again written by Stan Lee, penciled and inked by Dick Ayers. So he's still around here, even though he's gone off Fantastic Four. Johnny arrives at the Baxter building. Reed tells him, we are once again off doing our own thing. We want you to fight the Sandman. It reviews Sandman's fight with Spidey. They then reveal that, you know, last we saw Sandman, he was inside a metal barrel attached to an industrial vacuum cleaner, and he was handed over to the cops that way. Well, the cops then decided, let's put him in a jail cell with bars on the window, and let's see how that turns out. Well, guess how that turned out? Believe it or not, he turned into sand and escaped. So one uh, thing I do want to mention is that back on page two, Johnny is still acting like Johnny the wolf rather than Johnny the serial monogamist here on the second to last panel on page two. Set your mind at ease, big daddy. Whatever your caper it is, I'll still wrap it up in time to date some lucky chick tonight. Yes. And then Reed is like, okay, Romeo, while you're fighting your inferiority complex, I'll fill you in on your mission. So we haven't yet committed to Johnny as a committed man. No, that is true. Although he will, I think, not actually be seen with any women other than Dory for the next no. couple of years. No. Reed Richards says, why don't you go find Spider-Man and get him to help you with the Sandman? Of course, Johnny is like, no way. He tracks down Sandman, who is on a bridge. Sandman is not impressed by him, jumps off the bridge, turns to sand, gets away. Johnny gets a clever idea. He goes ahead and dresses up like Spider-Man, calls out on a bullhorn saying, hey, Sandman, come fight me. Sandman says, hey, it's Spider-Man. I hate him. Push him off the building. Then this is sort of a redux of what we just saw with the vulture, where it's like, hey, why don't you try to knock me out of the air? Why don't you see how that goes? And it's like, oh, no, I'm falling. And, <laughs> and it's like, surprise, sucker, I can actually fly. He falls and then flames on and says, nope, I'm not Spider-Man. I'm Human Torch. I can fly. He chases Sandman back inside the building. We then get to see that Ayers is drawing a villain that was very much using Dicko's very particular talents. Ayers does a really nice job with the Sandman. And the whole sequence on page nine, where the Sandman falls through the elevator shaft as sand and then reconstitutes himself, I think is really beautiful. I think he does a nice job with it. I've got your back on that one. Yes. Ayers is doing his best Ditko impression when it comes to doing just the Sandman, although everything else looks like standard Ayers art. He really nails it. Uh, and yeah. I really like how he handles it. He does. Then we have a nice, unique way of defeating the Sandman, where Johnny gets the sprinklers turned on, which is, of course, something that's easy to do when you're on fire. Sandman turns to mud. First of many times, we'll see that happen to him. And Johnny is then able to just beat him up. There's a great panel on the final in page 13, where he just says zonk and slams him in the jaw, punches him out. And it is a satisfying ending. I think this issue justifies bringing Sandman back relatively quickly it is fun to see him fight another hero it is fun to see a, a clever new way to defeat him 
And there won't be a lot of ways to defeat Sandman going forward, but this is two of them. And then Spider-Man just shows up in the last panel and it's like, hey, I guess I didn't need to defeat the Sandman. There goes the torch. And they never actually get to meet or talk. Nicely drawn issue by Ayers. Nice to have a great villain show up so that he doesn't have to fight the plant man or pay spot Pete again. All around excellent issue of Human Torch in Strange Shales. Yes, I'm with you on that. And I'm ready to go ahead and move on to uh, the Doctor Strange story, which I will have some things to say about. So then we get to a comic we've been waiting on for a long time. Doctor Strange is the only Marvel hero who did not get an origin right away, who we just began in Medias Res. We just began with him mid-career. He was in two issues and then away for two issues and then came back for another issue, still without an origin. All of those stories were just five pages long. Now, finally, we get a longer story and we get the origin of Doctor Strange and we have the debut of his Caucasoid eyes. He no yes, longer... I will point out there are going to be a couple of stories that are going to be published in the next few months where he has Asian eyes still. And I presume those are stories that Ditko had already done before Lee came in and said, we're going to do this origin story this way. And no. I think they were already done and dusted and ready to go. Uh, also, the other thing I'll point out is, remember how I said that he seemed to have the eye of Agamotto in those first appearances, but that it would seem to disappear and then he would get it back later? We see the first appearance of his weird squarish amulet here, which is what he will have for the next several months before he then somehow earns the eye of Agamotto, which looks very similar to the one he had in previous issues. That's true. So this is an absolutely amazing issue. This is just absolutely gorgeous. Steve Ditko just absolutely kills it with this issue. Instantly on page two, you know, Steve Ditko does this really good job, something he never gets to do in Spider-Man, of showing people who are down and out. Stephen Strange, same first name as Steve Ditko, is just very, very believably down and out. We get him, see him going through this gorgeous palace of the ancient one. We get a very sophisticated narrative where we begin with him as a down and out bum sort of confronting the ancient one. The ancient one reads his mind and we see his origin. Another thing Steve Dicko is really doing is assholes. And we see <laughs> Stephen Strange was a huge asshole and he could not look more smug or awesome as the cocky surgeon. So this is, you can always tell when you've got a great Marvel origin story, when they really didn't have to change it much for the movie. And mm -hmm. the first Doctor Strange movie is very faithfully adapted from this story. Benedict Cumberbatch would be in the movie. He is a great cocky asshole surgeon. They do not say why the single car accident happens in here, which I thought was interesting. They just explained that he got a single car accident. Suddenly he couldn't use his hands. We get these great noirish panels. This entire story is just wonderfully noirish. The center panel on the bottom of page three, classic noir, Venetian blind, shadow on the wall. He becomes totally down and out. We then cut back to, he is now talking to the ancient one. He then says, no, I should have known. It was just a waste of time. You're nothing but an old fraud. And then, which just like happens in the movie. But then he says like, I'm leaving. And the ancient one's like, you can't, it's really snowy. And mm -hmm. he's like, I'll bet you caused the snow. And it's like, wait, what am I saying? I don't think you have any powers. I don't know what's going on. And then he meets Mordo. Now in the movie, they sort of broke up Mordo's character into two characters. They brought in Kaecilius, who was a character who would appear a little later in the Dicko issues, and had Kaecilius as the disciple of the Ancient One who is secretly working with Dormammu. And they have Mordo as another 
disciple of the ancient one who was just beginning to be disaffected just a little bit in the movie. Here they have Mordo as a disciple who is already disaffected enough to be working with Dormammu. I forgot that Dormammu shows up in this issue. Yeah, you don't see his face. Here. Now, we had seen Dormammu referenced in a spell in previous issues, hadn't we? Ah, Oh, I don't remember. It was either Doctor Strange or the Ancient One. They're always saying, you know, by the hoary host of Hogoth, Vishanti be praised and all this kind of stuff. And one said, I summon the power of the dread Dormammu or something like that. Okay. I'm like, huh. But then later they decided, no, that that's not right. They're not going to be <laughs> drawing power from him anymore. I guess in the movie they say Dormammu, but I'm never going to say Dormammu. That sounds too weird. I say Dormammu. So Mordo already working with Dormammu. Dormammu, accept my incense offering. Let the force of your power descend upon my enemy. Let him feel your fatal touch. I beseech you, Dormammu. Doctor Strange sees this, uh, tries to stop Mordo. There's an awesome panel of Mordo attaching a, of course, metal always has to be riveted, as you pointed out. So attaching a riveted metal gag to his face. But it turns out that no one else can see it except for him. Finding his hands with mystic power, but no one else can see it except for him. And Doctor Strange realizes he can't tell the Ancient One what's going on, but he has to agree to become the Ancient One's disciple and get the mystic power to defeat Mordo. However, as soon as he agrees to become the Ancient One's disciple, the Ancient One's like, oh yeah, let me go and take Mordo's spells off you. And it's like, what, you knew about Mordo's spells? Like, oh yeah, I totally know Mordo's evil. But, you know, I prefer better to keep him around. At first, when I saw Doctor Strange had these mystic bonds on him that were keeping him from doing anything, and he was there with the Ancient One, I'm like, what kind of magic person are you, Ancient One, that you can't see that this guy's got (laughs) got magic clamps on his hands and his mouth? And I'm like, oh, no, he did see it. He was just playing the long game. Okay, no, we're good. And then we see just one final panel of Doctor Strange slowly mastering the Mystic Arts and getting to modern day. So I think this is just a fantastic origin issue. Could not be more beautifully drawn by Ditko in terms of the noirishness, in terms of the mysticism, in terms of creating these three very compelling characters. We don't actually get to see Dormammu, but we hear him mentioned. So we have four characters who are going to last this book in great stead for quite some time. And I think this is a fantastic issue. Yeah, so I do have one more thing to say about this. And it's talking about comparison with the movie. That one thing about the movie that I disliked, well, there are a couple of things, but one thing about it that I really disliked was they make it very clear that Stephen Strange wasn't practicing magic all that long. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you specifically have, he's on the phone when he has the car accident when they're essentially talking about him coming in to work on James Rhodes, who had just had an injury. Which completely makes no sense. That completely screws up the entire timeline of the Marvel Universe. Yes. For one thing, Doctor Strange is on the list of people who are dangerous enough that Hydra wants to kill already in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And yet, in Doctor Strange, they imply that he got his powers after the end of Captain America's Civil War, when, because they imply, they don't say, but they imply that the Casey's being brought in to consult on when he gets in his accident is the injury that Rhodey has at the end of Captain America Civil War, which came after Captain America Winter Soldier. Also, it just it makes it a little weirder that you have this Tibetan monastery where all these people come to uh, to learn magic. And then it's the white dude shows up and like six months later, he's running the place. Yeah, <laughs> felt a little bit weird. Whereas, you know, here in the comics, this could have been a decade yes. or more. Yeah, they just completely screwed up. You know, they love connecting continuity, but implying that was Rhodey completely screws up that movie in a way that only a nerd like me would obsessively care about. Well, and me. <laughs> yes, true. All right. We will do Tales of Suspense next with Iron Man. So the cover introduces us to the new Iron Man armor. 
It also introduces us to a new villain who is not great. No. <laughs> it's Mr. Doll, one of the dumbest names in history, and his look also is pretty dumb. It's classic Ditko, but in a way that doesn't make any sense. If this were a Doctor Strange villain, I would totally buy this outfit, right? Yeah. I mean, this looks like something that some weird mystic in some distant land might be dressed up in, but not just the mysterious Mr. Doll. <laughs> and actually, one of the things that makes me think of, too, from a little bit earlier is just how different Spider-Man and Doctor Strange are. They Those are Ditko's two major contributions to the Marvel Universe, and they could not be more different from each other in some way. I mean, they're very similar because, I mean, they're both Ditko creations and have some very Ditko qualities to them. But the kid living in Queens trying to go to high school and also be a superhero versus the worldly wise surgeon who had a fall and came back and has gained all this wisdom and fighting all these cosmic things. They're so different from each other. And yet they're both very Ditko. Yes. And now we've got an entirely different Ditko book with yes. Ben's number yes. 48. This is Ditko inked by heirs, which I think you have said before that you never liked Ditko inked by anybody else. No. And I'm not a big fan of Ayers' inking, so I've got your back on this one, certainly. <laughs> it does not gel very well. No. So much of Ditko's power is his hero's hero, is his use of lights and darks, and the way he uses light and shadow. Air is just completely blows it out of the water. He's not conveying that at all. I mean, and, I mean, let's just say that Ditko is just extremely ill-suited for Iron Man. There's nothing slick about Ditko, and Iron Man is a very slick hero, literally slick and figuratively slick. This very much looks like the Ditko art I grew up with, which wasn't inked by Ditko, and because all of the style is gone, you just notice like, okay, everyone's fingers look really weird. <laughs> and yet, and yet, this is the issue that introduces the look that Iron Man would have until this very day. He did not yes. look like the Iron Man we know and love today until this issue, and presumably Ditko designed it. Yes, presumably. So, yeah, I agree with everything you said about him being a bad match, and yet he left an indelible mark on this character in just these three issues. Yes. We find out that someone that Stark is doing some business with backed out of something at the last minute. So he, as Iron Man, goes there to confront the guy. And it turns out that he is being, I guess not blackmailed, but strong-armed by Mr. Doll. So Mr. Doll's basically the puppet master, except he he's like the puppet master. extremely similar to the puppet master. Except in this case, he makes voodoo dolls. Rather than making things that control you, it's things that he can then cause you pain. Yes. <laughs> it's, but, it's, but once again, he seems to have some sort of clay that he can shape these things out of. And he is the world's fastest clay shaper. Oh, yes. Because he can have a voodoo doll of one person in his hand and then quickly shape it to look like somebody else. Yeah. So then when he re-sculpts this guy's face to then look like Iron Man's head, it's not actually looking like the person inside. Shouldn't you only be able to cause the metal pain? I don't know. He is then causing pain to Iron Man, who tumbles off the edge of a balcony into the ocean. Doesn't rust this time. True. Even though this is salt water in this case. So, you know, you'd think it'd be more likely to actually rust. Mr. Doll goes back to instead threatening and torturing uh, the other industrialist. Iron Man is able to get away. He then returns back to his offices. Once again, we have the thing that we usually have where 
he's let his battery run too low and he's desperately trying to get himself plugged in, which is something that I think everybody these days is a lot more familiar with now that we all have cell phones. That we're always yes. It's like, oh no, it's about to die. Please, does anybody have a charger? So, so they have this whole thing like, well, was he too late? It's like, no, he's not too late. That's not going to be a problem. Meanwhile, we have an absolutely ugly looking panel of pepper and happy yes age six it's just <laughs> these just look terrible there's a phone call that's going into tony's office that wakes him up apparently hey he didn't die he's you know revived by his chest device but he's realizing that the reason he keeps on running out of energy so much is because his armor is so big and heavy and so with just with it being heavy that means there's a lot more energy he has to expend to move it around. So he needs a lighter, uh, more flexible armor that's just as powerful, but is not going to strain his power reserves nearly as much. So we see him starting to make it. We don't see the end result yet. Meanwhile, we see more results of Mr. Dolls. I keep on wanting to say like blackmail or something like that, but it's not that. It's like arm twisting. You know, yeah. metaphorically arm twisting. Extortion. Extortion. Ex- there you go. Extortion. There you go. So he's forcing people to turn over their fortunes to him. We see Stark demonstrating the new armor and he puts it on piece by piece. Uh, yeah, we of- get, I, I was complaining about there in this issue, but this three page sequence on pages eight, nine and 10 is pretty, pretty cool. This yeah. sequence of this is something that they would do over and over again. From this point on, these sequences of snapping together the armor piece by piece and putting it on and then debuting the new armor. And it is a it's a nice sequence. It really is. I mean, you know, once again, the art is this Ditko airs combination. It doesn't work very well, but overall, the sequence, I think, despite some of that execution uh, is really nice. Yeah. Now, here is one contention that I will make. I do not think that Ditko, when he designed this, ever intended to have the points of his mask sticking out when the mask was in place Hmm. so kirby when he first draws this armor in the next issue of the avengers he's the one who i think looks at this page and says oh okay he's got these pointy things sticking up on the corners of his mask but uh, if you look at how it settles into place in the last two panels of page 10 i don't think it's supposed to do that i think that was a misinterpretation between Ditko and Kirby here. That's entirely possible. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. So uh, the cops show up at Stark's office and they're saying, hey, look, this Mr. Doll guy has been extorting all of these wealthy industrialists around here. We figure he hasn't got to you yet and that must just be a matter of time. So we're going to stick around and bodyguard. Well, of course, this is really what he doesn't want because he wants to change into his new Iron Man armor and go out there and fight Mr. Doll himself. But with the cops around, he can't really get away. He convinces the cops that he wants to mack on Pepper. So, hey, can I have a little privacy? Because, you know, me and my secretary, we want to go back to the back room there. And she, of course, is like, oh, good, it's finally happening. And he's like, oh, hey, thanks for tricking him with me, baby. Uh, Here, just, just remain here and I'll go out and do what I need to do. He slips out, leaves her crying, which is, you know, kind of, yes. kind of cruel. This is a painful sequence to read. It really is. <laughs> To see him just completely abusing her emotions like this. At least he does acknowledge that it was a crappy thing to do to her. You know, it's on the bottom of page 12. He just says, poor Pepper. I hated to treat her that way, but I had no other choice. So then he comes back as Iron Man, supposedly while Tony Stark is getting busy with Pepper in the back room. 
then the doll does show up to try to get Mr. Stark. Mr. Doll ends up uh, using his powers on some of the cops. Then he turns it on Iron Man once again, and he is in incredible pain. Now, one of the things I don't like about this version of the armor here is how the eye holes are so large, (laughs) where you can see everything of his eyes through there very clearly. (laughs) Well, I think that there was a sense that this book wasn't working. I think there was a sense that people didn't really love Tony Stark as Iron Man. Part of the reason was his armor was too bulky. Part of the reason was it was just one color. And part of the reason was people couldn't see his eyes. So then Tony actually very clearly says, one of the things I like about this new armor is that people will be able to see my eyes. He says, this new mask serves two purposes. One, it prevents my true identity from being discovered. And two, it enables my expression to show, which will psychologically aid in instilling fear in the hearts of my enemies. (laughs) Like, okay, so you think your eyes are scarier than metal slits? I think metal (laughs) slits are pretty scary. Yeah, I I, I think an expressionless metal face coming at you is way more intimidating than, oh, look at those dreamy eyes inside there. Yes. Tony Stark's in pain because of what Mr. Doll is doing. Tony Stark then chases everyone else out of the room and then wants to keep Mr. Doll talking. And then Mr. Doll says, oh, well, now I'm going to change my sculpture into one that looks like Tony Stark, and I'm going to start hurting him. He has to pretend like he is not in excruciating pain because if he showed that he was, then it would give away the fact that he was actually um, Tony Stark. And meanwhile, there is a really terrible panel on the bottom of page 14 that backlit shot of his face there, which just does not work at all. He's trying to show that he's not in pain. And Mr. Dahl says, look at you turning away from my little pet. Who would have thought that the mighty Iron Man is so squeamish? When, of course, what he's doing is he's trying to resist crumpling in pain. Mr. Dahl dismisses Iron Man out of his sight, which, of course, gives him a chance to do some other stuff. So he locks himself in this room and then goes and does some tinkering on his new armor. Comes back out after he's done with his tinkering. Then Mr. Dahl makes another Iron Man doll and is trying to use it on Iron Man. But then he pulls out this device he has hastily constructed and he shoots it at Mr. Dahl. And what it does is it actually takes the clay doll that's in his hands and somehow reshapes it through through some sort of magic team. Quite a device. Yes. I think this is the only time we've ever seen Tony Stark use his point a laser at something and reshape one lump of clay into another lump of clay, according to my specifications, instantly. This is the only time we ever see him use that device. Yes. As in the next issue will be the only time we ever see him use his built-in slide rule. (laughs) So we're seeing a lot of those little one-time-off things here. He's able to defeat Mr. Doll by turning his doll into one that looks like Mr. Doll. Iron Man says, oh, well, I need to get out of here. And then meanwhile, I'll go find Stark for you. So then he goes, and one of the things you find is whenever he's changing in and out of his Iron Man armor, now that they've established that the legs and the sleeves come out of the boots and out of the gloves, that means you see a lot of him in just his little metal bikini shorts uh, with bare legs. Yes, I hope you like Tony Stark's bare thighs because you're going to be seeing a lot of them from this point on. (laughs) He then comes back in as Stark and Happy says, say, where's Pepper? I thought she was with you. He says, Pepper, good Lord, I clean forgot. 
<laughs> so he just literally forgot that he played with her emotions very cruelly and then just forgot that he left her locked in that room. She is not happy at the end. Very rightfully so. Uh, even though they sort of make it sound like, oh, women, what's their deal? <laughs> it's like, well, Says, maybe you played with her emotions, then locked her in a back room for an hour or two and forgot about her. Women, I can figure happy, but Pepper, she's in a class by herself. Yes. So absolute abuse here. Hard to read, but, you know, not entirely unbelievable you know, that, that he would abuse her emotions like this. And, you know, it is shown it's being wrong. She's shown, you yes. know. Your mileage will vary over the years in terms of how much they can get us to like or dislike Tony Stark, how much they can play with the idea of, okay, does he become a more compelling character because he's somewhat dickish or does he just become a hard to like jerk? And they hit that balance just right in the movies. They don't always get it just right in the comics. Yeah. I believe we are moving on to Tales to Astonish, which I think is yours. We had said before, they pointed out that it was a Lee Ditko issue of... Mm -hmm. Iron Man before, and we're like, oh, have they been bragging about Lee Kirby on the covers? I went back and checked. Yes, they have been bragging about Lee Kirby on the covers. And indeed, this issue of Tales of Sonic brags that this is a Lee Kirby Marvel masterpiece. Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp battle the unbeatable human top. So here we get the closest thing the Wasp will have to an arch-villain. And this is one of many cases in these early 60s comics where we have a villain who is introduced with a really dumb name and a really dumb costume. And then eventually they'll be like, well, there's something worth reclaiming there. So let's go ahead and try the same villain with a new name and a new costume. And eventually the human top will become the whirlwind and become the closest thing the wasp has to an arch villain. Um, He's really kind of a stalker in some way. Like that's sort of the way he is her arch villain to some extent. Right. I mean, yes. So then we get to an absolutely insane issue. We begin with the history of Dave Cannon. He was always really good at spinning around. But he was up to no good. So he would spit around in ways that he would commit crimes. And of course, eventually became a figure skater. Figure skaters need to spin around a lot. But he's a crooked figure skater to the degree that you can be a crooked figure skater. No, it would make sense if he was a figure skater, but he's not. He's a speed skater. (laughs) Well, that doesn't make any sense. No. Figure skaters spin around. Speed skaters don't spin around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, it would make a lot more sense if he was a figure skater, but he's not. That's right. The betting syndicate will pay me a bundle for this caper. And then he wins the speed. Yes, that makes no sense at all. We cut to Ant-Man of the Wasp. We have a panel that makes it into the no prize book where the Wasp still has her wings when she is full size and she is in an elevator with somebody else. We then get something we've never seen before. The ants are trying to tell them that a department store is being robbed. And of course, ants can't speak English. That would be insane. No, the ants are communicating <laughs> with sort of rebus. The ants are communicating with... <laughs> picture stories that he can then read the ants minds and project them on a monitor and they can't actually write the words they can't write the words there is someone named the human top who is robbing a department store but they can show a picture of danley's department store which is labeled danley's department store with dollar signs flying out of it that's (laughs) and then they show a hand with a gun pointing at a clock it says august 4th a.m so (laughs) the ants are surprisingly sophisticated for people who can't actually speak english or write full sentences so then we got to the human tops outfit and the human tops outfit is something in this issue it is absolutely insane it's a turnip it's a turnip so the the thing is he's called the human top his helmet comes to a point on the top and then the first time we really see him using the outfit on the first panel of page seven it's pretty clear that he has to go around on his head in this outfit, that he is spinning around on his head. And then with his feet, he has to reach out and steal a bag of money. 
then they very quickly, Kirby quickly realizes like, okay, this is insane. I can't keep this up. <laughs> I can't have this guy spitting around on the point on his head and doing things with his feet the entire time he is in this comic. I'm going to have to switch him to spitting around on his feet. And so then Giant Man and the Wasp are chasing the human top around. He's spitting around. He's sort of very much twirling around like a ballet dancer or a figure skater on page eight. You got some funny images on page nine of Giant well, Man. Well, run- first of all, on page eight, Giant Man uses the ants, once again, mixed up theme, to somehow soften the concrete under the sidewalk. Smatter, big brain. You never suspected that enough obedient ants could soften a concrete sidewalk's crust? Well, no, I never no. suspected that. In fact, ants cannot do that. Because that's completely nuts. (laughs) You get funny images on page nine of Giant Man being ungainly and sort of smashing into things as he is trying to chase the human top. Human tops gets away down a subway tunnel. He is then enjoying reading the papers in his lair afterwards. Giant Man defeated by human top in traumatic chase. We then get Giant Man and the Wasp. And they're like, I clearly need more practice when I do this. Let me go ahead and create a giant top and try to chase it around my headquarters until I get really good at it. And he manages to grab it for a second, but it spun out of my fingers. It whirls too fast. It's too slippery. I'm still not good enough for it. And he's like, oh, man, I'm clearly no good at fighting giant top themed villains. And then the issue just ends. They announce they will finish up next issue. So we have our second cliffhanger of the month. So this is an absolutely insane issue. We got a fun villain. Eventually, they will realize, hmm, so we have a spitty villain. That's fine. We can have a spinny villain. What is the scariest thing one associates with spinniness? Hmm. Well, I know what it is. It's tops. Tops are scary. <laughs> and then eventually, they would say, like, wait just a second. No, tops aren't scary. You know what's scary? Whirlwinds. Let's call them whirlwind because whirlwinds are actually scary, which was a smarter idea. But here he is, the human top. It is a delightfully daffy issue with Kirby having a lot of fun with it. And it's good to have the person who will eventually come to watch Arch Nemesis. I think this is a fun issue. It's a lot of fun to get Kirby having fun on this book, which he had abandoned so long ago. Well, it sounds like you like this issue a little better than I do. I have no patience for the human top as the human top. It's I I, I just can't. (laughs) Also, I will point out that Hank Pym being the dodgy intellectual that he is on page 11 he says i've rigged up some apparati to help me do that (laughs) little thing so you know the plural of apparatus would be apparati i guess so here's another thing in that same speech balloon says i've rigged up some apparati to help me do that little thing do that little thing is a weird phrase i've only ever heard from stan lee but it actually is a favorite phrase of his in this period that's true. Fury uses it a lot. And it seems to be some sort of, I don't know, like, you know, yeah, yeah, you know what? I'll just do that little thing. It's a weird, weird phrase, but you'll see uh, Stanley using it a fair amount. I really don't have anything else to say about this issue. It's nice to have Kirby back, but that is about all I can say about it. Yes, it is a crazy issue. When it, but, comes, to, um, like, when it comes to really daffy, stupid villains, give me Paste Pot Pete any day over this. Oh, just, no. I think he is almost Pace Pot Pete worthy. I think him spinning around on the point on his head, taking bags of money with his feet is delightful. Uh, I, I just I, I just can't. So it seems like a little bit of a down note to end on here. It's... <laughs> well, we're going to have these less satisfying issues that don't wrap up and they end on 
cliffhangers and we're going to be dealing with that on this podcast from this point on and we're going to be dealing with the human top again next episode yes and mr hyde again it's both a threat and a promise okay so this is a fun episode we will see you again in two weeks all right see you next episode take care everybody stay safe okay thanks everybody Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.